only on 702 for the curious. 702 Weekend Breakfast with Pamela Mudine. Email her on pamelo at 702.co.za. It is Weekend Breakfast. Thank you very much for being with us. My name is Pimelo Motene. I'll be with you until 10. Um, uh, joined now on the line by Anna Trapido. We are discussing tourism. We're discussing Freedom Day. We're discussing lots of complex things this morning, Anna. And, I, and I, I'm not getting a sense that everybody's excited. Good morning, Anna. Hello, hello. Yeah, it, it is a bit of a damp squib, isn't it? When mm. I mean, it is so exciting that this is a great victory against the crime against humanity. Mm. And... You know, whatever, and you know, obviously there have been good and bad things that have happened since, but, you know, just recognizing the beauty of that moment mm. is not happening, is it? I mean, it's, 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 it is that. It is it is that and the imagery of that and the lived experience. So you juxtapose that mm. to the lived, the lived experience and the expectations that came with that day. And people are feeling extremely let down. You know, and people have every right mm. to do so. Mm. You know, that, that what happened subsequently, although I think, you know, the nature of a negotiated settlement is, you know, that frankly you haven't won a war. That when you have a negotiated settlement, you make all sorts of compromises and that in failing to recognize the benefits of that settlement, um, we are very quick to judge what that didn't allow to happen. Mm. So um, I will be heading to the Africa's Travel in Daba, and uh, that's happening in yes. Durban. It's been around for a while. We, we, you know, we've seen it over the years. And I was having a conversation with the conveners there. And part of my question to her was around our diversity as a nation. Could it mm-hmm. be to some level uh, at our own at our own peril, at our own detriment? So we don't have one solid identity. We're so diverse. Good thing on the one hand, very difficult to market. And you're also saying that, for instance, in the food sector, it's, you know, people who are selling us as a nation are not doing a great job. Could this be the reason? Because we're so difficult to define. Look, I think that that's, very generous of you that, <laughs> you know, that, that the Irish Minister of Tourism markets rain and he does it with great enthusiasm and skill, that we have so much going for us that I really think that, oh, we're too diverse is a cop-out. Um, in terms of food, it just seems to me that can I, food is the one thing that all people go on holiday, who go on holiday do, that some people like to surf, some people like to go to museums, you know, some people just want to lie on the beach and read their book, but everybody eats. And yet, we have singularly failed to capitalize on that fact and and define a culinary identity that, especially in the restaurants that we sell to tourists, that somehow we are just serving up endless a, terrible food, and B, just the worst sort of cliches. And we're doing South African food in its beautiful diversity a great disservice. That, you know, I'm going to pick on the carnival because that's where I went this week, but mm. it's just an example of really all the food that we kind of push at tourists as though somehow that's what it means to be a South African. Because, yeah. If you wander down Villacazi Street, you just get a kind of Mandela Disney thing going on. That you know, there really isn't anything of any culinary value to eat there. Um, 
that or historical value. You know that that. In fact, in, in terms of Vilakazi Street, that the peach tree that Madiba planted has been chopped down. You know, the peach tree that, um, you know, Winnie made um, preserved peaches for her little girls when they were sort of poor and miserable. Uh, you know, that's a great culinary icon, and yet it, it got chopped down to make way for the renovation. That if you, so it's, it's true of the sort of Vilakazi experience, it's true of if you go into Santon and Parkview and you know that, that anything that is described as a, a South African restaurant with a capital S and a capital A, it's almost invariably a kind of Afro Disney experience. You get face painting and drumming and, and overcooked foods. You know, you get meat that's been roasted until it's tough as old boots. And the carnival, um, which, you know, is this sort of iconic meat restaurant in Mulder's Drift, that it seems to exist at this point only to be photographed in in-flight magazines. That so, it's just every possible cliche and and dreadful food, and so, yet it's packed tourists because they they don't know where else to go. So, so that this is the question, you know, and and that's why I was asking whether maybe our diversity is a problem because it's very difficult to define South African. What what is South African culture? It's so diverse. We've got different things in the South African culture. It's not one thing. And also that when you have a place like Carnival, which you and I, I'm sure we've spoken about before, it's been around for many, many years. It keeps surviving. People keep going there, right? And yet really great restaurants <laughs> yeah. don't make it and don't survive. Mm. So there is this thing about, so whose fault is it exactly? Because people still go back. Look, partly, I mean, I think in terms of diversity, all countries are diverse, but South Africa quite likes to imagine it's unique in all sorts of ways. Um, regional diversity is a thing in Italy, it's a thing all over the world, in Singapore, etc. Um, that we are often much more similar as South Africans than we think we are. Um, and in terms of the flavor repertoire, I mean, I, I completely get that there are a range of distinct ethnic and historical experiences. But if you close your eyes and get fed a spoon, you can taste South Africa. You can taste it as quite distinct from anywhere else and that you can taste it not in these kind of little ethnic boxes that we like to kind of say, this is black food, this is white food, this is Zulu food, this is Afrikaans food, whatever. That there are core tastes. Um, and we... Over, often overemphasize differences. Um, that if you close your eyes and get fed a spoonful of South African food, I would say that sweet and the savory thing is very common, that the taste of apricot jam is very common, that coriander is very common, that that fermented taste that you get both in things like ching and amasi that goes right across sort of South African Indian style briyanis and, you know, Afrikaners use it in marinating meat. And, you know, there are a range of core ingredients and tastes that do define us as a geographical and yes. national entity. So I remember but a restaurant. I'm not sure that it's true that we're, we're so different. We like to think we're very different. Okay. Now, I remember a restaurant that did that so well. 
that for me was iconically a South African restaurant mm. and it closed down. And you know what restaurant I'm talking about? Mm. Kramadulas was one of the Rose mm. restaurants. Mm. And it, it didn't survive. It didn't survive with all its splendor, with all its excellence. It didn't survive. Well, and in fairness, if we're being kind of stark and honest, one of the reasons it didn't survive was that one of the chefs got murdered. Mm. So, you know, we're... We're, we're a complicated and unpleasant nation in all sorts of ways. But I agree with you that I think that Hamadullah's, in so many ways, um, was both iconic and... Why were those old men not given national awards? You know, we've just had yet another award ceremony where we put medals on all sorts of worthy kind of cultural icons. Mm. I don't think there were any chefs there. And again, this is the form of material culture that people engage in every day. Mm. Some people like the ballet and some people don't. We all eat. And yet somehow we sort of ignore chefs as they are great cultural workers. But you're right that everybody, you know, when there are people who come to town from somewhere else, you think, oh, God, what are we going to do with these people? And they, they tend to get put in a big bus and taken to the carnival. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and, and you know that's a lack of imagination on our part for one thing and maybe a lack of confidence you know mm. is it that we're saying the food mm. that we make at home that we know is beautiful mm-hmm. um, we're a bit shy to show that to people in case you know are we worried that we'll be hurt that they, they might not like it or they'd say something that would hurt our feelings are, mm. we, are we actively hiding lights under bushels so, I mean, we, we're quite interesting in the sense that, of course, every time we say we're South Africans, we've got to bring out drums and we've got to pretend like we, there's a dance for everything, which just is yeah. just... It's and just, children's face painting. It's, it's, it's like annoying. It's like a five-year-old party in the most irritating way. Yes, and and really and truly, it's it's not even anything like what is a South African dance. When you ask each and every yeah. single one of South African indigenous groups, that it's far from it. So whatever that thing yeah. is that they've created is not quite like um, something that you'd see in an Nguni tribe or a, a Sasutu no, exactly. tribe, whatever. So, but that's just that, and it works for them. And the atrocious deco that we sometimes um, tie up with what is South African, some leopard print stuff. And, yes, and no, some, we, some, we very much like to sort of um, have naked tribesmen with like nasty leopard skin and um, you know bits of sort of nylon fur. And but, the um, statues are our favourite. Okay, now we love that, and we we love a big fire, and a big fire can be a wonderful thing. But it's such a shame to imply that. The only cooking technique that South Africans have is to make a big fire and then shove great lumps of, of meat <laughs> onto a spear. You know, that, that, that there are occasions when I'm sure that can be very pleasant, but they are few and far between. And it doesn't... I don't know what, what that's about, so- but it, it, very seldom does it taste good and it doesn't offer any cultural insight and other than that, a, a Japanese person can go home and, and like, if, if they're, they're doing what my little boy's got to say, he says he's got a zoo belly. And what he means is he's trying to eat as many 
sort of um, exciting animals as possible. So he can tick off crocodile, he can tick off hippo, whatever. But but unless we're, we're trying to like ensure that everybody goes home with a zoo belly, we really haven't given them anything that they could think that we're beautiful and worthy of respect over. So, Anna, when you then think of a South African restaurant worth its salt, who who comes up? I mean, I dare ask. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I do think that part of the problem is that we've completely failed to notice that the rest of the world is rather interested in African ingredients and cooking techniques in general and Southern African cooking techniques and ingredients in particular. That um, Gwyneth Paltrow, her website says that sorghum is the new quinoa. That, you know, well, why is she making money selling sorghum to people and, and we're not kind of marketing Mabele in any effective way? That all over Africa there are increasingly modern chefs who are taking traditional ingredients and traditional cooking techniques into a fine dining African context. So there's this magnificent man called Pierre Chum who spends half his time in New York and half his time in Lagos, who um, is the executive chef at a restaurant in Lagos called Nock. And, you know, he does these sort of beautiful, modern, new African cuisine recipes that there's a fantastic guy in Kigali called John Goffin who is working with what he calls dodo. But, you know, when I saw what he was working with, I said, oh, but it's tepe. You know, that, that tepe it's, is it's the, a, the spinach. It's a, it's a wild the, leaf that South yes. Africans use as well. And yet he's doing all of these beautiful things that have caused the New York Times to say he is the best example of African creative fusion and, you know, all of this. So, that there are lots of African chefs. Mourad Lalou is a magnificent fine dining Moroccan chef. They are all saying, what does it mean to be a modern fine dining chef and also an African and also a, a, a citizen? And they have very conclusively proved that it doesn't mean painting your face and drumming and putting a lump of meat on a spear. And so where are our examples of people doing that? Uh, you know, people who come on holiday, they, they want to spend money in nice restaurants. And, you know, they've often got money to do it in a way that locals don't. That they are actually quite a good um, group of people to explore what fine dining identity means in an African context because they've got money and time on their hands. So I would say in a Johannesburg context, we're really a bit stuffed that I really do think that Coco Reinhardt's at Epicure um, is magnificent. You know, it's a kind of Afro-optimistic sort of palace of opulence in Santon, and you can have beautiful deep-fried plantains and little swirls of tweel biscuit and hibiscus sorbet, and it's all beautiful. But what he is broadly doing, although he does have some Southern African... Uh, plates on his menu is that on the whole that's a kind of dialogue about what it means to be a modern western central African mm, mm. Um, so it's a fantastic restaurant I think it's uh, 
a really innovative restaurant in the Johannesburg context, but it doesn't really answer our question, yep. where is South African fine dining? This is it. I was going to say, he doesn't answer our question. <laughs> he, yeah, he answers a different question yeah. and he does it beautifully. And in lots of ways, he shows the way. You think, okay, well, you know, where's our example of that? Um, but Could it yeah, be? So, let me, uh, let me just like put a span in the works here. Could it be that those who really are keen and interested just don't have the means? Could it be that we, in a way, and this is part of the discussion around this Freedom Day, that we have essentially not empowered those who would love to do that and just cannot do it? I think what we certainly haven't done is empower our minds so that a lot... I. You, you meet quite a lot of fantastic young black chefs, for instance, who are cooking beautifully, and yet they are cooking within a kind of francophone food genre, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, that everybody has the right to be whatever kind of chef they like. But they seem not to be excited by any of their own heritage experiences, you know, that, that they're not exploring what it was that, and also, I think the problem, and this is going to sound bad, but can I, we've got so trapped in a kind of biggie besting of township cooking. Mm. Um, so that there's a whole lot of people who are marketing themselves as the sort of African, South African chef. Mm-hmm. And quite often what they're doing is they're taking the food of poverty and dispossession, mm-hmm. which is what a lot of township food is, that people who were forcibly removed from land and who had very little access to heritage ingredients as a result and who did the best with very limited resources and very limited time and all of those things that come if you've got these enormously long commutes, etc. Um, and and families were broken up and those are not conditions in which the best cooking happens. And if we just take sort of... Um, Township classics, and we put a, a pansy on the top. Hmm. You know, that's not. At what point is that poverty porn and not actually a food genre? Hmm. I know. So I'm not sure. I and I'm sure that's going to make all sorts of people very cross. But it seems to me we need to be exploring heritage in a way that goes back more than thirty years. I, I think it's a discussion to be had. I think this. Um this, the genre of food that comes through, which you're calling not a genre, that comes through because of people's evolution uh, of, of certain circumstances is a very yeah. important discussion because it's exactly that. Those who defend it to the ends of the world and those who say, well, that actually isn't where I come from. Um, yeah. I, I come from somewhere else. This was something that we had to live with because we were in a space which didn't allow us to get food anywhere else and we were given crumbs, blah, 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 blah. Mm. And so we and made... And lemon lemonade is a thing. You know, there are some absolutely beautiful things that come out of the most difficult of circumstances. But something like bunny chow, for instance, which is such a product of apartheid in the hospitality industry, mm. is a really beautiful, delicious thing that has an identity beyond Mm. those difficult circumstances. And the same is true of certain sorts of sort of seven colors township food. But it's just not the only story. And so often it gets presented as though that's it. And as long as we style it pretty, Mm. then we've solved the problem. And I, I think that that's, you know, often it's very Eurocentric food for one thing. Actually, it is. You know, it's, it's, 
It's queen's cake and trifle often. And it's also quite uh, commercial. It's, it's, you know, it's stuff that comes out of tins and stuff. And that's, that's, well, a, exactly. that's a conversation because, for another day. That's because people have no land. Yeah. You know, when you, when you are taken off your land, you can no longer grow things. You have to buy things in a tin and off a packet. Mm. Anna Trapido, let's think about that some more. I think a lot to think about there in our food feature. What do you identify as South African meal or even more stressful, a South African restaurant?